This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Merry Christmas, Sam. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Last time, we had talked about how the angel Gabriel had come to Mary. He had come to Zechariah, and he is promising supernatural births to both of them. In Mary's case, this is, like, super dangerous. It's very treacherous for her because... Back then, if you had sex before marriage, it was considered adultery, and the penalty was death, according to the law of Moses. So she's facing a lot, a lot of potential humiliation and embarrassment. She runs off to go get encouragement from Elizabeth, who is also enjoying a supernatural pregnancy, and she's just super encouraged. Elizabeth, you know, talks about how blessed she is to be with her, you know, her baby John, the Baptist leaps in the womb when Jesus comes near. It's this wonderful time. Mary belts out a song that's called the Magnificat, where she's just creating this medley of psalms uh, and other passages that are throughout Scripture that reveals just how much she loves the Word of God. And then it says Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And so John is going to be Jesus's cousin, six months older. So when Mary goes home at three months pregnant, Elizabeth is about due like Mm. this. So she's like right about ready to have a baby when Mary goes home. And so today we're going to talk about the birth of John the Baptist and the song or or the prayer of Zechariah that happens as a result when he's able to speak again. Do you remember why he can't speak? Zechariah can't talk because the angel came to him while he was inside the temple performing his duties as a priest. The angel tells him what's going to happen, and Zechariah goes into biology mode and is like, well, let me correct you here because Elizabeth is you know, postmenopausal. She's up in years. We haven't been able to have a child our whole life. This isn't going to be able to happen, Gabriel. And so Gabriel's like, "Uh, excuse me, you're supposed to be a religious leader. You're supposed to know better. So you're going to be quiet until your son is born, which seems harsh. But like at the same time, if you remember, Mary has all the same objections like, hey, I'm a virgin. How can this happen? She has all the same doubts. And the difference is he put himself in religious leadership, ministry leadership. She is a young, you know, teenaged girl. And God meets both of them in different ways. But his promise and his favor is on both of them, even though Zechariah has to be quiet (laughs) for nine months, uh, which that will be broken in today's episode when he belts out this really wonderful prayer. But we're starting in, in Luke chapter one and verse 57. And it says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, just like God had had promised. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So you can imagine, like, 
especially among the Hebrews, because who are your heroes in the scriptures? Like who, who are going to be your heroes as, as far as women go looking back into the Bible, it's Sarah. Well, you know, Abraham's wife who lived to be, you know, pretty old when she has her son, Isaac, but had suffered through barrenness and Rachel suffered through barrenness and Rebecca suffered through barrenness. And you have all of these stories that involve barrenness. And so when they see the Lord overcome barrenness, it's, it's almost like coming out of the pages of scripture where God's faithfulness to the great matriarchs of the Bible is now coming upon Elizabeth. That's not lost upon the Hebrew people. And so they're rejoicing with her. God has shown great mercy to her. This is a big deal, especially because she's been barren and now she's old. And it says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Well, that's that's required by the law. That also is taking your mind back to Abraham. And it says, they would have called his name Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Like she says, John, like, is this a slight to you? Are you offended? He was going to be called after your name. Are are you going to overrule? Are you going to say, no, 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 I want my son to be named after me. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And so I want to pause here for a moment because all of this is inviting your mind to go back a thousand years, whether whether you know it or not. Like if you, if you know the scriptures, the way that the Bible is coming you to tell you this story is very, very similar to an Old Testament story that comes before David is going to come along. And so when John is given the name and Zechariah writes down his name is John, in the original language, it would have looked like Yohanan. That's the way that it's written. That's why our John has an H in it. It's like, why is there an H? The H is silent, right? Well, where that name originally comes from, it's Yohanan. And so it's what's in that root is Hana, which is it's it's a word for grace. John is a name that means God is gracious. But Hannah is in the root of that. It's it shares a stem in that name. And so why does God want John to have that kind of a root in his name? Well, to put it plainly, a lot of what's going on is just retelling you the story of what happened to Hannah. You remember Hannah yeah. from the Old Testament? We go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel's the book that tells us, you know, David becomes king. It's where David fights Goliath. It's where David's anointed to become king. It's, it is the book that introduces us to the great, wonderful king of the Old Testament, like the, the height of the kingdom of Israel. Here he is, right? And how does it start? Well, it starts with somebody who's going to anoint him. Well, who is it that anoints him? Who anoints David to be king? Samuel. Samuel. Who is Samuel's mom? Hannah. Hannah. So, and what's what's the issue? Why is Samuel's birth supernatural? Why is it so amazing? Hannah must have been barren too. Ta-da! So Hannah is barren. And so, wow, okay, that story's going on. And what's going on is you have Hannah who's married to Elkanah, and Elkanah 
you know, they're not getting pregnant. So what does Hannah do? She goes to the tabernacle. And by the way, they have to be of the tribe of Levi because Samuel's ultimately going to become a, a priest in service. So here you have a Levite. What tribe do Zechariah and Elizabeth come from? The Levites. The Levites. So hmm, there's another echo. So Hannah is outside the, the tabernacle and she's praying, God, give me a son. Please, please give me a son. And the high priest, Eli, comes over to her and he says, you know, she's just babbling, you know, with her mouth, but no words are coming out, which is like he thinks she's drunk. But does that sound familiar? Here's somebody who wants to speak, but nothing's coming out. Hmm. Right. Who does that sound like? That's going to be Zechariah, who's no longer allowed to, to speak, you know, and Eli's like, oh, she must be drunk. Well, what ends up happening here is you have Hannah who has a child, who goes on into the priesthood, and God is going to use Samuel to be the one who prepares the way for this new king. He's the one who's calling out the religious leaders. He's telling Eli, you and your sons are wicked, and God's favor is going to be taken away from you. He is the one who is going to anoint David to become the great king of Israel and by the way, what was what was God's promise to Mary? So a thousand years later, you have God through Gabriel that comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son and he is going to reign on the throne of his father, David, as the son of David, the great messianic figure. And oh, by the way, in this nativity story, I'm going to involve a whole nother story of a family that's going to have a baby that is going to grow up, who's going to call out the religious leaders, uh, an overcoming of barrenness, and he is going to be the one to prepare the way for the great king, Jesus. And so all these stories are tracking. Back to Zechariah. Mm -hmm. Why would they need to have named the baby his name? I feel like that doesn't happen in any other Bible stories. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess it was just a cultural thing at that time. Okay, it just seems like everywhere else in the Bible, no one ever says that. Yeah, nobody names it Junior, you know, a son Junior. But here, I guess it would have been appropriate at that time for him to be Zechariah. Everybody was expecting it. So, you know, from Old Testament times, you got to remember, 400 years have passed from the last prophet of the Old Testament to this. So cultural norms and everything else have got four centuries to morph by the time you get to it. But... To go back to the similarities real quick, I wrote this a long time ago, but I just want to read it. The The similarities between Samuel, who remember was born from Hannah to be the precursor that will lead the way to David. I want you to consider the similarities between that story and the story of Elizabeth with John the Baptist. So I wrote this a long time ago. Here we go. Like Hannah, the mother of John the Baptist or Elizabeth was also barren. Like Samuel, John was the son of a Levite priest. When Hannah went to the tabernacle and prayed for a son, we are told that the priest thought she was drunk because her mouth moved, but no words came out. Well, likewise, Zechariah, John's father, was struck mute because he prayed to the Lord while burning incense inside the temple rather than the tabernacle because he was questioning God's promise to give him a son. Both John and Samuel were dedicated to the Lord with Nazarite vows. Both sons confronted wicked religious leaders of their day, declaring that they would not receive salvation. 
Both Samuel and John were considered great prophets by all the people of Israel, and both of them broke long seasons where God had been apparently silent and had not sent a prophet for a long time. And most importantly, both men were charged with the honor of revealing the coming king of Israel. And so the last similarity that I want to point out between the two is what does Hannah do after she has Samuel? She sings. What does Mary do after she has Jesus? She sings. Sings. What does Zechariah do? Well, he offers a prayer. He prophesies. But they all like respond by just belting out these scriptures out of gratitude. And so in the the song of Mary and in the prophecy of Zechariah, you hear echoes of Hannah. I mean, and then they're very, very clear. Uh, If you wanted to put a side-by-side comparison and go just check the themes and the language, like there's some similarities, which we're not going to get into, but go for it. Like it, it would be, it would, I'd welcome you to do that. So at that point, when he said his name is John and they all wondered, like, I wonder why he's named John. His God is gracious. The the same like Hana root is in there. It says immediately at that point, his mouth was opened and his tongue loose. So he'd, he'd been obedient to God. He did exactly what God had asked and boom, now he's talking and he is blessing God. He's not mad about the mute thing at all. <laughs> he is, he is blessing God. And it said, fear came on all their neighbors and all these things. Cause you just see a miracle. This guy's been mute. And now all of a sudden, the moment the name comes and bam, he's all of a sudden talking like everybody's going to be saying there's something different about this kid. There's something different about this John guy and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through, through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You think some people are thinking that he's Jesus? Yeah, possibly. I mean, so remember like in Malachi, at the end of Malachi, it says that Elijah has to come first. Yeah. And we talked about in our last episode how John is going to be the fulfillment of that. Like he is going to be, he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's dressed the same as Elijah. His ministry looks this uh, much the same as Elijah. Uh, but yeah, I think for sure people are like, everybody's waiting. At this point, like everybody's on pins and needles waiting for the Messiah. And there were lots of false messiahs that came during this time. Everybody's looking. And so when anytime something miraculous is surrounding a birth, no doubt they would have been like, hmm, this seems like God is moving here. Yeah, it makes sense because this one is very supernatural. I mean, it's checking a bunch of boxes. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I would have thought that if I lived back then. And so Zechariah is going to clear that up, though. (laughs) You know, he's in his prayer, he's going to say, well, let me pray what is to come. And he offers this prophecy. It says his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and and the next uh, 11 verses or so, just listen to the promises that come. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he is speaking past tense about something that's about to come. It's like he sees the hand of God moving. He knows what the prophecies are. And yet, even at the the embryonic stage of God moving, it's like as good as done. He has redeemed 
his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So right there is your clue, because guess what house Zechariah is not? David. He's not David. David is from the house of the, the tribe of Judah. Zechariah is a priest. He's from the line of Levi. And so when he says that he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, people would have been like, well, wait a minute, Johnson, that's, that's not him. That's not this baby. And so Zechariah is also pointing, saying, no, 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 there's still someone else to come, right? Uh, someone from the house of David, which is not my house. And that, that idea of raising up a horn of salvation you see that all over the Psalms. You see that all over the Old Testament. And the idea was, it's literally like the horn of an animal. When, a, when an animal is victorious, they kind of arch their back, lift their head. They look majestic and regal, and the horns are used, you know, like if you ever see rams. Have you ever seen them butt heads? No. Really? Like, it's, it's worth Google, like YouTube this rams fighting where they like run and kind of like veer up and then smash each other in the head with their horns. It sounds like a shotgun blast. Like they, they hit each other really hard. And so there's a lot of times where you'll see whether it's from an ox or a ram or whatever, where it talks about the horns smashing or, or piercing through and defeating an enemy. It was seen as a a symbol of strength, the, the altar of God was to have horns on it because it was symbolic of victory. And so now it's saying God is giving us victory, the victory of salvation in the house of David. And he is going to do so as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What, what covenant is that? The one to Abraham. The one to Abraham? I mean, to all of them. To all of them. I mean, so, so they're, one of the things that we screw up in, in biblical understanding is we tend to like see really myopic sections of Scripture. Oh, this is when God did this, or this is when God did that. And we break Scripture into a million different periods. But the reality is there's one promise that comes in Genesis 3.15 immediately after the fall of man and God comes and he says to the serpent I am going to raise up the seed of the woman and y'all are the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be at war but there's going to come a day when the seed of the woman crushes the head of the snake putting an end to the banquet of death putting an end to all of his deceptive schemes and sin and and all of the things that his tyranny brings to this world and the rest of all of scripture is waiting around for the seed of the woman who is going to make all things right and defeat evil once and for all. And so when you get to Noah, God brings about another covenant of mercy that he will not bring justice upon the world again by flood, right? And and the rainbow, which I love, is a is a bow, but where is it pointed? It's a weapon of war pointed to the heavens. Well, that's telling you something. God is making a covenant whereby mercy and mercy, the weapon is turned away from the earth. You get to Abraham and he's saying, you know, I'm going to give you seed. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. And through your seed singular, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he makes the same promise to Isaac. And then he makes the same promise to Jacob. And then he comes to, to Judah and he says, hey, through your line, 
the one who is going to reign as king is going to come and and it gives him like incredible messianic titles and then he makes promises to david and he made promises to solomon all of it pointing not to some particular period but to a savior that's coming to redeem all of mankind not just israel all nations this is the covenant that he's talking about when he says he spoke by his mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers throughout all those ages to remember his holy covenant, which is this golden thread that runs all through the Old Testament. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, I love this. He just So in the middle of this, the prophecy, he looks, and you can imagine Zechariah now being able to talk for the first time, having prayed to have a son for so long, is now looking at this little baby, and he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, where is he pulling that from? Well, that's that sounds a lot like the promises of the Old Testament, of Malachi. It sounds like the promises of Isaiah, the one who's going before the Lord to make straight the paths and to, to level the mountains and raise the valleys. Like, you are going to be that prophet that comes before the great Messiah, and you are going to give the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins. Well, what does John do when he becomes an adult? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he goes out and he confronts the religious, and he is calling everybody to salvation And Zechariah goes on, you're going to do this because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light, this is again Isaiah, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so that's a big prayer over your son. It's beautiful. You're going to be the one who leads the way inviting everybody to recognize that in the one who comes after you, you're the prophet of the Most High. You are calling them to the forgiveness of sins, to the knowledge, to make them aware that there is a way out of this, that there is salvation, that the tender mercy of our God is available, that light can pierce this darkness, and the shadow of death does not have to have the final word over you. You're coming to show them the path of peace. And that's going to be John's mission that you'll find him carrying out for the remainder of his life. And it says in verse 80, to close out Luke chapter 1, long chapter, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, when it says his public appearance to Israel. Um, This is when everything gets going toward Jesus's adulthood, and John just begins drawing crowds like that. This is one thing about John. You know, he, this dude was fearless. He confronted the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and called them vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. Like he's, whoa, you're not supposed to say that to the religious leaders. 
He didn't. He was laying it down. If people were fake, he goes after the soldiers for for making people bribe. You know, for safety, he goes after Herod. He goes after, and that that cost him his head ultimately. But he just did not care. He was single minded about his mission to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it says in the scriptures that all of Judea and the surrounding regions went out to him to be baptized in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of sins. And so there is something going on in the national consciousness that's recognizing our Messiah's near. He's coming, and we need to get ready. We need to make our hearts ready for repentance because he, his advent is near. Yeah, and the prophecy of John the Baptist is beautiful, and his life is beautiful, but it's not glamorous or one that I would necessarily want. No. Because he has that moment where everyone's coming out to him, but then think, like, he has to give that, like, it's just such humility because he's like, oh, Jesus is here now, not about me at all anymore. Yeah. He must increase, I must decrease. Go follow him. Like, you had to give up all the lights and the glamour. Like, everyone's coming to you right now, John. You're the guy. You're the guy. You're the guy. <laughs> yeah. And he had to be the guy who's like, I'm not the guy anymore. Yeah. He, he was the guy. Like, everybody's coming out to John, but he, you know, the glamour, you know, he's, he's living out in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and honey, and he's wearing a garment of, of camel hair, you know, like Elijah, you know, he's not, <laughs> he's not the cover of glamour magazine. Yeah, not the one that you want. Necessarily. Yeah, no, no, no. But what was that for? Like, this is one of the things, like when I, when I was on sabbatical, one of the, one of the things the guy was talking about was, People who are going into restoration tend to go to the wilderness, not the oasis. Hmm. And I thought that was really interesting that when when people are at their wits end, it, it's usually people meet God in unique ways out in the wilderness more so than in the oasis. And I was like, you know, that's kind of true of our experience. It's it's in the good times that where we've got a million things to distract us and to give us, you know, the little pleasures and things of life that we forget about God. But here, you know, John spends his entire ministry out in the wilderness of Judea, which if you've ever been out there, you remember what it's like? I wouldn't like to be out there. No, it's rocks and dirt. And well, I wouldn't have sand. Like, sure. <laughs> yeah, we would be We'd done. Be out. We'd be done. But like, there's nothing to distract you. You, I mean, really, like the the solitude, the quiet of it all. You you would be single minded on the Lord, and He does that as an act of worship to to prevent anything from distracting Him. To where the one thing that could be alluring that I imagine is the praise of all the people who are like, yeah. "Ooh, I want to be baptized by John. I'm coming out to John." Even the religious leaders are wanting to be baptized by this guy, so everybody could say, "Oh, he even he they were baptized by John." You know, Josephus writes about him. We have all kinds of records about John that are outside the scripture. This guy was a big deal, big deal. And yet when Jesus comes along, he's like, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of your sandal, like to be the lowest of your slaves. And he tells everybody, my whole life's purpose, everything that I've lived for, all the discomfort, the fact that I've been out here in the wilderness all this time, like the point of my ministry is now over. Follow that guy. And you do have to wonder, like, how, I mean, we're going to take a turn that I didn't intend to take with this episode because it's a little less Christmassy. But that had to be hard. Yeah, impossible. I mean, that, I mean that's, what, what, else is, what else is your identity in? You've been that guy your whole life. 
Like your whole ministry is being out in the wilderness, baptizing and preaching to repent and, hey, there's somebody coming. Well, when the guy came, you know, what instantaneous drop off. Yeah. What are you, what are you, what are you for? You know, and he still has some disciples who follow him. We know that, but the crowds, you know, they're all now pointing over to Jesus. That's what I'm saying. John the Baptist is a wild character. He is. Because the humility that mm-hmm. he shows is just crazy. Yeah, and you think, you know, I had this conversation with somebody recently who's was struggling with just wanting to, whether or not to stay in ministry. And the, the amazing thing about John the Baptist is like, if you had to, and Jesus will say this, you know, like, this guy's amazing. Look at all the stuff he does, you know, the, his faithfulness. He couldn't, the powerful couldn't sway him. The religious couldn't sway him. Like he was all in at all costs for the Lord. And yet what's the last thing we know about John the Baptist? Well, he's beheaded. I guess we do know that's that. The very we, last <laughs> that's the very last thing that, that we know of his life. But right before that, in Matthew chapter 11, he gets imprisoned because he's calling out Herod for marrying his brother's wife. You know, that's just how he was. Like, you, you didn't get a pass. He called strikes and balls on everybody. And he, he gets thrown into a prison that's outside the promised land, right? So, like, I mean, Zechariah's promises, hey, we're going to be delivered from all of our enemies. You know, all of the, the oppression of Israel is going to stop. Like, this should be good. And so John is now in a jail, outside the promised land thinking that the Messiah is coming to to bring about this great kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. And so even for John, he all the question marks are going, what in the world, what in the world, how in the world does this make sense? And so the last thing we know about John is he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to hunt down Jesus, to find him. And John asked Jesus, are you him or should we look for someone else? That's the last words we know that were that were originated out of John's heart. Like, what does that make you think? He was getting pretty nervous that he spent his life on nothing. Yeah. So here you have a guy that has laid it all out for the Lord at great cost, great pain, great sacrifice, and the Lord moves in a way that makes no sense to him. Hmm. And he's he's not letting go, but he's holding on by his fingernails, right? And he's in a jail, and he, none of none of the sermons that he's hearing, you know, are making any sense. What do you mean, take up our crosses? What do you mean, we have to die? What do you mean, your kingdom's not of this world? What do you mean? And so, the the disciples, his two disciples, go to Jesus, and they're like, "Are you him, or should we ask, or should we seek someone else?" And Jesus. I love this about how kind and merciful our Savior is. He doesn't say he's a failure. Like he doubted, he doubted me. Like I guess I'm going to have to find another prophet. You know, he doesn't do that. Like he looks at the two disciples and he's like, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John what you see here. He, he basically he quotes Isaiah 61 where it says, you know, tell him that good news is preached to the poor. Do you have it up in front of you? Yeah. Read, read what he says to the disciples. In verse 4, it says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
So Jesus, from memory, is quoting passages that are about him, right? And, you know, let me, let me tell you what he's quoting. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, where it says, the good news are preached to the poor. That's the opening verse of Isaiah 61. But he's also quoting from Isaiah 35, like when Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus, is saying, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. It's a guy that's going to preach good news to the poor, to the down and out, to the to the outcast, to the person who never thought in a million years that they could be valued by God. That's who's going to get the good news. But also, he says, the, the eyes are going to be open. This is Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. All right, check. The ears of the deaf unstopped, check. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, check. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Gee, that sounds familiar, check. So at the end of all that, he quotes that the good news to the poor. And so let me read Isaiah 61 and see if you notice what Jesus changes, okay? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Well, Jesus is like, I'm that. Like, I've come. I've, I'm preaching good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and hear this, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So now if you're John and you're in jail and you're wondering what in the world is Jesus doing, what part of this verse are you most interested in? Those prison doors open. <laughs> yeah, man. Like liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus omits that line and replaces it with good news. Nope. Read it, read it again. Which, which, is the stranger, which is the stranger part of what Jesus says to those disciples? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me? Yep, before that. So we got eyes being open. We got, got blind receive their sight, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Wait a minute. Where do you find dead are raised up? Let's go back to Isaiah 61. It's not there. Isaiah 35, not there. John wants prison doors opened, and what does Jesus say? More about resurrection. What's your prison? Death in the end. Yeah. This, I mean, and essentially a fallen world, fallen life, everything about this world that is so corrupt, it is the bigger prison that you're living in. It's the, it's the enslavement to sin. It's the prison on this side of death. Like everything about this world is corrupt. And instead of saying, hey, John, I'm going to open up your prison door so you can continue life in a broken, nasty world, what does he say? The dead are raised. In other words, John, your liberty is going to come when I defeat sin and I defeat death and I infuse you with the power of resurrection. And so the disciples are going to go back. John's going to know, wait a minute. I heard all the other promises. All right, spirit, good news. Preach to the poor. Check eyes open to the blind. Check the deaf hear the lame walk. Yep. 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 What dead are raised. That must be in place of opening the prison doors. And so when that ax comes down on John's neck, what does Jesus want John to know? It's not the end. That's right. Death does not have the final word over you, and therefore you are not a prisoner. Hmm. You are free. You're free from the spirit of death. You're free from the fear of death. You're free from the tyrannies of this world that, that want to train you that your life ends at the grave, that everything you've lived for ends at the grave. And John, my kingdom is not of this world because I have overcome this world. 
I've defeated death. And so trust in that. And then as the disciples are walking away at this point, so Jesus has buried the hope of the resurrection and the response to John as in, sorry, John, you are going to die, but I overcome death. When they walk away, Jesus doesn't say, geez, even my greatest prophet doubted. He praises them. He's praising John to all the people, and he eventually says something along the lines of, you know, among every everybody who's ever been born of women, there has not arisen a greater prophet than that guy. And let that be an, if you feel like you're at a season of life where, man, you're barely hanging on to faith, but you're staying faithful and you refuse to let go of the, of the Lord, even though you're resentful and you're hurting and everything else, when you hold your fingernails in the Lord, even when it doesn't seem to make sense to anymore, you know what the Lord's response is? He looks at John and says, he's doubting me. He's, he's got all the questions raging. He doesn't understand what I'm doing and yet he refuses to let go of me, there's not a better prophet that's ever existed than that guy. And he doesn't use the caveat of prophet. Jesus says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay, yeah, so no one, period. No one, yeah, which is wild. And it's in the middle of the doubt. Well, why is that? Because let me tell you, the greatest, most precious worship that you will ever offer to the Lord is not when things are wonderful and rosy. It's when everything is telling you to let him go and to walk away and you refuse to, even when it doesn't make sense to hold on. That's costly worship. That's sacrificial worship. That's a worship that says, I'll follow you even when it hurts. And that is the worship that pleases Jesus most. And you see it here. And that's an encouragement because sometimes when you're walking through those seasons where your faith is rocked or where you're not sure what's going on or it seems like his hand is lifted and you say, I'm going to follow you anyway, you just don't understand how precious that worship is to the Lord. Yeah, and even what Jesus says right after he talks about that line about John the Baptist is a great one for us. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Yeah. (laughs) Which is amazing now that he's like, oh, it's okay that you feel like you're the least in the kingdom because of my kingdom, now you're greater than even the greatest guy that I gave yeah. credit to. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's right. So so it doesn't cap and say, okay, now you're all under him. It's like, man, if you just, if you humble yourself, hmm. you could be, you could be greater than him. Yeah. Amazing. And, and what made John great was not the crowds. It, it, it wasn't all the, the spectacles and everything else. It was the fact that he was willing to do anything in submission and surrender to the Lord, even when it hurt and when it didn't make sense. And so, like, I, he's going to be a fun person to get to talk to in heaven. I bet he saw some pretty wild stuff. <laughs> and I would imagine that on that day when that axe blade fell and severed his head from his body and he entered into glory, I would have loved to have seen the relief the satisfaction, the joy, the worship that overcame him because he really is panicked. He loves the Lord so much and wants to be faithful to the Lord so much. There was some sense of a panic like, oh, no, have I gotten it wrong? Like, have I been displeasing the Lord by pointing everybody to Jesus all this time? Like, he's he, that's his worry because he loves the Lord. And so I bet that was a pretty amazing, <laughs> an amazing reunion of God and him. Yeah, and a good lesson to take your doubts directly to Jesus. Yeah, wrestle with him. He's, he's not going to yell at you. He's not 
mad at you because of them. That yeah. They're the appropriate place to take it is to Jesus. Yeah. So Jacob, if anybody should have been afraid to wrestle with God, it should have been Jacob because that guy was a scoundrel if you remember that series. I mean, all of them. Yeah. And what does God do? He lets them win. Mm. You know, wrestling God is a very safe thing to do if you do it not letting go until you get the blessing. God will let you win. He will let you win if you don't let go. That's an awesome thing. And so so this is Zechariah. It's the whole reason why he is included in this and Elizabeth is including in, in this is the Bible is giving you a nod saying, just like Samuel had to come before David, John the Baptist is so much greater than Samuel, a greater prophet than Samuel, which means Jesus is a far greater king than David. It's retelling the story. So if you ever wonder why in the world did they mix all this up with the nativity, let's just get to Jesus. Well, the whole point of John's birth and the whole point of Elizabeth's barrenness and and Zechariah's song is it's all pointing you to the fact that Jesus is fulfilling the pattern that was laid up for King David. And he's the son of David who will take the throne of David and reign on it forever and ever and ever. Amen? Amen. All right, so we're going to jump back next time, and we're going to get into the birth of Jesus, and there's there's just so much good stuff there. So obviously. Yeah, I guess I didn't need to say that. I don't need to sell that one. No, you don't need to like work that one into it. Yeah, people, have been, people have been doing this for 2,000 years now. It's kind of a big deal. I don't need to upsell. We divide our calendar off that day. <laughs> But but it it is and there's a lot but there's a lot of stuff that maybe you haven't noticed before that's really pretty amazing and precious. So join us next time on the Out of Water podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, RioVistaChurch.com/slash. Out of water.